Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining me for another episode of the Typical Skeptic Podcast. Um, I have another fascinating guest today. Today, we're going to be getting more into forbidden history, forbidden archaeology. We're going to be talking about sites like Gobekli Tepe, Atlantis. um, And my my guest I have with me tonight wrote a book called The Empires of Atlantis, The Lost Empires of Atlantis. And it's just the empires of Atlantis. But I have with me Marco Vigato, and he's originally from Italy, but he lives in Mexico. But he's dedicated the past 15 years of, of, of his life documenting evidence of ancient advanced civilizations around the world. The author of several research papers, documentaries, and popular blog, Uncharted Ruins, he holds degrees from the Harvard Business School and Bocconi University. And as I said, he's a native of Italy. And uh, his website is marcovigato.com, and his book, again, is called The Empires of Atlantis, and I want to give him a big, warm welcome to the show. Marco, thank you for joining me. How are you? Good. Uh, Thank you, Robert. Uh, It's a pleasure to be on the show tonight. So I guess, like, a lot of people are going to, I guess, ask this question, like, um, what triggered your interest in Atlantis? Like, um, because a lot of people write books on Atlantis, but it seems like you have a lot of information that people haven't touched on or it, 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 a lot of things that people don't know about as far as the, the subject mm-hmm. goes. Yeah, I think from a very early age, uh, I had the opportunity of visiting uh, many archaeological sites throughout uh, much of Europe, uh, the Middle East, North Africa. And so uh, that's uh, what uh, prompted uh, the first questions, uh, particularly at sites, uh, megalithic sites, um, like the Giza pyramids, I went to Baalbek, I went to Jerusalem. So they're, they're really impressive uh, megalithic architectures at this site. So it started shaping a picture that uh, the way history was being taught in school, like or just like um, the, the the mainstream view of history was uh, fundamentally flawed. Like there was really no explanation for all these great achievements of ancient genius, clearly told of a very advanced, very sophisticated civilization of which there was a seemingly no trace. And so that's also what prompted uh, research uh, into the sources. So going back uh, to some of the original sources from Plato's story of of Atlantis, that was one of the first great revelations so, to me, really learning for the first time about this great lost civilization. And then uh, the many more uh, sources uh, from uh, throughout the world, from various uh, mythical, esoteric traditions. So I actually spent uh, almost 15 years uh, researching uh, various traditions uh, uh, from around the world, both mythical traditions, esoteric traditions, as well as the latest scientific evidence in Atlantis. So the creator would have think is probably one of the most comprehensive, if not the most comprehensive picture to date of uh, the lost civilization. Do you, did you also study, because um, uh, I have another guest who came on who mentioned this guy for the first time, and um, he's actually from your native country. He's a Diodorus of Sicily. Did you? Did you yes. He, he mentioned well, he's, uh, a lot, right? Yes. Absolutely. Well, uh, there were actually several several classical authors. I wouldn't say that the Diodorus is a uh, well, I, I guess we could consider him my my countryman from like over two thousand years ago. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that not, not not a contemporary author, but definitely yeah. he's one of several classical authors that talk about uh, Atlantis in various fashions, right? Um, so the, the thing about uh, uh, Plato's story is that he explicitly uh, mentions uh, Atlantis and really describes the destruction of Atlantis, but many other classical authors, they also describe 
various islands uh, in uh, the Atlantic Ocean. Actually, one of the earliest descriptions of Atlantis or of a remnant of Atlantis, at least in the Western civilization, is in Plato's Odyssey uh, and the description of various islands in the Atlantic Ocean. And now, uh, Homer uh, did not call it uh, Atlantis, he called it Scaria, but from the description that he gives of the capital city of the island itself, uh, as well as of its destruction and punishment by the gods. So, um, the, uh, the story pretty much uh, is almost identical to, to, to Plato's story. So it's very likely that Homer himself was referring to one of the last islands of uh, Atlantis. But uh, definitely Plato's account is uh, the most famous and the most complete uh, that has survived uh, to, to our day from classical antiquity, although it's by no means the only one. Now, if you look into like some esoteric traditions, a lot of people will say that Poseidon uh, founded Atlantis and he married a, a mortal woman named Cleto, mm -hmm. and uh, that, um, and then he had sons, and and then mm -hmm. that could have been like the the Titans versus the the gods versus war back in ancient Greece that they talked about, like the Atlanteans versus the Titans. I, I think that's what it was, but. Um, mm -hmm. But how much, I mean, and then some people say that that Poseidon was actually Anki, the Anunnaki Anki version of Anki. Do you, do you buy into this concept at all? Or what, what do you, what do you, do you just go by facts that you can verify? Or is that a verifiable by, what, do you, what would you say to that statement? Well, I think at the core of uh, the Atlantis story, what you have is really the idea of uh, the incarnation or the manifestation of a divine principle. Actually, uh, even according to Plato, the Atlanteans were truly divine humans uh, in the sense that, uh, as you say, they were the result of the interbreeding of a god, of Poseidon, with a mortal woman, with, uh, with Cleto. And so that uh, the first uh, 10 uh, kings uh, of Atlantis were truly really hybrid progeny of uh, gods and mortals, uh, which is, again, a very similar story, for instance, what you find in uh, the Bible, in uh, the book of Genesis, uh, with the story of the fallen angels, where it is said that uh, the Ben-Hai Elohim, or the sons of God, came unto the daughters of men, and they have children in Nephilim. So uh, there is also a very similar tradition of uh, the descent uh, of uh, a divine principle, the incarnation, the manifestation of a divine principle that gave rise to this uh, primeval divine uh, uh, humanity. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, and and uh, now this all takes place at the, the time of Atlantis in a in a period that we call the Younger Dryas. Um, not mm -hmm. not a lot of my audience might understand what the Younger Dryas is. I I understand a little bit about it because I've I've watched a lot of I do a lot of research. Um, but can you kind of like give an idea of when Atlantis might existed? This this period that we're referring to called the Younger Dryas, and what was going on then? You know. Well, the Younger Dryas really represents uh, the terminal phase of Atlantean civilization. It's the time of the fall, of the uh, final collapse uh, of Atlantis uh, and the sinking uh, of uh, these large mid-Atlantic landmass uh, that housed uh, these uh, uh, civilizations. Um, however, the origins of Atlantean civilization stretch much, much farther back in time, right? tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of years ago. Now, if you talk about the Younger Dryas, uh, this is a uh, 
uh, a time of uh, a truly cataclysmic time. Uh, it's a, um, a time of uh, uh, global extinctions, a global rise in uh, sea levels. Uh, there is a very mysterious uh, cold uh, spell, like a radical change in climate. And that also to, to help you uh, situate uh, that in time, we're talking about the period between um, around 11,000 BC up until approximately 9,000 or 9,600 um, BC. It's just at the end of uh, the last ice age. Now, what we know about uh, the Younger Dryas is that there was a sudden drop in uh, global temperatures. So they were already, uh, it was as if the world uh, um, was already coming out of the ice age and then it plunged into these other mini ice age that lasted around 1500 or between 1500 and 2000 years. And uh, at that time, uh, we see, for instance, the extinction of uh, the mammals, uh, of uh, lots of the Pleistocene megafauna around the world. So in recent decades, uh, uh, several scientists have come up with uh, alternative hypotheses as to the causes of the Younger Dryas cataclysm or the Younger Dryas extinction event, as it has since become known. Uh, one of the most widely accepted views, which is gaining more and more mainstream academic recognition, is the idea that the massive cometary impact was actually responsible for the Younger Dryas. Um, actually, what the model suggests uh, is uh, a set uh, of two different impacts. One at the beginning of uh, the Younger Dryas that caused uh, a mini ice age um, around 11,000 BC, and then a second impact at the end uh, of the Younger Dryas around 9,600 BC that caused instead global warming was effectively responsible for ending the ice age uh, and then for a uh, global rise uh, in uh, sea levels. Uh, around the world. And quite curiously, this set of things which have been uh, established by, means, uh, by geological uh, methods, uh, by a uh, variety of dating methods, uh, really, they remarkably coincide with the time period as suggested by Plato for the sinking of Atlantis. As Plato suggests that Atlantis sunk approximately 9,600 years uh, before the time of Christ. He says 9,000 years before Solon. So, um, that pretty much situates the sinking of Atlantis uh, very precisely at the end of these uh, cataclysmic uh, period in Earth's history known as the Younger Dryas. Yeah, and, and I want to get back to something. I, I, I want to uh, talk about how actually how old this civilization was, because you said I heard you say mm -hmm. it could go back hundreds of thousands of years. But mm -hmm. what do you think about the, the, the about Plato's story where he says that that they had become like kind of like, I guess, devious in the end and that they had mixed their their own race with too much mortal admixture and a, and a great um, uh, uh, anthropologist on the internet, his name's Robert Seffer. He did a video on Atlantis and like the, and he, he made it look like this. He, he made it sound like there could have been various different types of humanoids on the earth back then. Like, you know, there was a uh, Neanderthal, Cro-Magnon, you know, like, and, and there, there was, were other hominids that we don't even know about. So he made the, uh, the, 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 the metaphoric, you know, that maybe they may, they were, you know, higher, they were of a demigod species and they mixed their race with too much mortal admixture. Is that, is that correct? Or is that, is, 
Plato's Atlantis, or the civilization that Plato describes, uh, uh, again, represents a, a terminal Atlantean civilization. It's just the last stage, uh, probably, of Atlantean civilization um, after already a set of cataclysm already caused the partial sinking and subsidence of uh, the Atlantis mainland. Now, uh, the reason why I suggest that there are a number of reasons why I suggest that Atlantean history must actually stretch uh, farther back uh, into, into prehistory. The first one is based on the testimony of the esoteric tradition. So if we believe, uh, as uh, suggested by the esoteric tradition, that the Atlanteans were, for, were truly the first uh, divine humans, uh, the first uh, truly anatomically modern humans to ever walk this planet, then we know from uh, various disciplines, but mostly from the field of anthropology, paleontology, that the first anatomically modern humans uh, appeared uh, around 200,000 years ago. And now this is a uh, being continually pushed back in time. So what he suggests in the book is that Atlantis was actually the place where the first truly anatomically modern humans evolved, or let's say yes, a human species, a highly evolved human species developed on Atlantis. Now, if you ask me the question about like this admixture that is also described by Plato, I think what is what Plato is really describing here is the interbreeding of these original Atlantean humanity with other hominin species. They already inhabited the planet at the time. We know that uh, back then there were already Neanderthals, there were Denisovans, uh, there were Homo erectus. So uh, the, the planet at the time was inhabited uh, by several different human species, uh, right? The different stages of uh, evolution. And so that to, to a very large extent, uh, uh, even the, most of the most recent uh, models of uh, human evolution, they uh, sort of abandoned this idea of uh, just a linear evolution of man in favor of a view in which different uh, human hominin species basically coexisted at the same time. And the interbred with each other is actually genetic evidence of interbreeding between uh, um, Homo sapiens sapiens or anatomically modern humans and Neanderthal um, to, to, to the extent uh, that, particularly with European populations, uh, most Europeans living today, they carry between two and three percent of Neanderthal DNA. So, uh, this is almost a uh, this is a well-established fact uh, right now. Now, uh, in my hypothesis, I go even further, and these in suggesting that the Atlanteans actually represent a separate human species that evolved in isolation, is now lost and sunk in mid-Atlantic landmass in the interbred with other um, human and hominin species. So when, when Plato actually described these uh, um, process of decadence uh, and these, uh, these matures, actually talking about these, uh, these interbreeding, like a dilution of the original Atlantean stock through interbreeding and that mixture with uh, other, other hominin species. Yeah, and and does this um and I want to get into I guess like what I guess we would call the Anunnaki I guess or what I mean mm -hmm. how they tie into this like the and what they what, what the, you know other people would call other researchers would call the shining ones and and yep. if you could talk about that like and how they fit into this picture I mean I guess they 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 kind of like were a brotherhood that kind of started civilization after the flood does that make sense I mean mm -hmm. that's what other people are saying. Yeah, I do believe that all these uh, traditions around the world that talk about 
the Anunnaki of the Shining Ones, uh, uh, the Ben Elohim of the Bible, Fallen Angels, uh, um, many other mythical traditions, for instance, we find in Central America, in South America, of Quetzalcoatl, Kukulkan, Viracocha. They all refer to various groups of survivors uh, from uh, these uh, lost civilizations that uh, uh, resettled uh, the post-Diluvian world after the Younger Dryas Cataclysm. They reestablished the civilization. That's the reason why all these uh, figures of uh, culture heroes, of culture bearers, they seem to share similar attributes in the sense that um, they're all associated uh, with uh, knowledge or the invention of agriculture, writing, metallurgy, monumental architecture. And uh, I don't think it's a coincidence uh, that uh, just around the, the same time uh, as the end of the Younger Dryas, also uh, the uh, time period when Plato situates the sinking of Atlantis, we're talking about uh, 9,000, 9,600 BC, we also see the sudden appearance, sudden emergence of agriculture, the so-called Neolithic Revolution. So uh, something must have happened to really trigger these uh, uh, huge surge of culture, of uh, civilization. Uh, if we, if we believe the mainstream view, then uh, humanity basically existed uh, as uh, hunter-gatherers for tens of thousands, not hundreds of thousands of years. And then all of a sudden, uh, we have to believe uh, just around 10,000 years uh, uh, BC, we had this huge flourishing of agriculture, monumental architecture, sites like Gobekli Tepe, they appear as if out of nowhere. And so that's uh, uh, why I think uh, that all of these uh, was not a natural development. It was a legacy. It was brought there from somewhere else. But people that were already in possession of the knowledge of agriculture, architecture, astronomy, the calendar, they spread this knowledge. They uh, brought this teaching to other peoples around the world. And I do believe that these people were essentially survivors from a lost civilization of prehistoric antiquity that scattered throughout the world in sort of diaspora triggered by the cataclysms that caused the, the sinking of Atlantis at the end of the Younger Dryas. Now, um, if, you, if, if I was to speculate a little bit, like, I wanted to get into a little bit about, like, you know, the 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 the, the physical characteristics characteristics of these people. Because if you look at the the the, the elongated skulls found in Paracas, Peru, mm -hmm. would you tie those to these people? And then, like, what I was gonna say was, um, I mean, is there any kind of thing that backs that up? Would you say, like, that the, the, mm -hmm. they were somewhat non-human? And that that could be their um, remnants of the, the, the these these skulls found in Paracas. Well, I, th I, th I think they were humans. So we're, we're talking about human beings. Uh, they might have been like more advanced human beings or might have belonged to, uh, to a different uh, human species. But we're still talking about human beings, probably like the genetic difference between Atlanteans and modern humans would be comparable to the, the genetic difference that exists between Denisovans and Neanderthals and, uh, and modern, modern humans. So well, we're still talking about uh, uh, humans, even though possibly a different human species. And when we talk about uh, the elongated skulls, I think uh, uh, there are two considerations. Uh, first of all, uh, there is clearly the tradition of artificial cranial deformation that is found across uh, so many different ancient cultures around the world. It's pretty much uh, spread uh, worldwide on nearly every continent. And I think uh, what uh, these traditions suggest 
less uh, is a desire to resemble the gods. Um, so in a, in a certain way, all these different peoples that practice cranial deformation, they were trying to look like, or gods to look like these uh, more advanced being these uh, uh, bringers of a civilization. And so it's quite possible that one of the uh, key characteristics uh, or the key like uh, uh, genetic features uh, of these people was uh, an elongated skull and a very elongated shape of the skull, which is uh, called uh, a dolicocephalic skull in uh, anthropological terms. Uh, that also then brings us uh, to the question of uh, the elongated skulls of Peru, for instance, and a number of other places around the world. Um, because in some cases, at least, uh, it looks like this was not uh, just uh, the effect of some uh, artificial cranial deformation. These people were actually born with these uh, uh, characteristics. So again, that may be hint uh, to hybridization, uh, like interbreeding between uh, Atlanteans uh, and uh, uh, modern humans or Cro-Magnons to, okay. to originate these, uh, this peculiarly elongated shape of the skull. And then do you, do you buy into like the ancient aliens theory at all? Like, do you think that it, that, they're, 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 that this had anything to do with some kind of, um, you know, like, um, how do I want to say this? Like, you know, anything that might've been, that originally came from off planet. No, I do, I, I do not. I think all the evidence uh, actually suggests these people were like, uh, they were humans, again, like uh, maybe potentially members of a different human species. But everything suggests that these people um, created a, a civilization that lasted for tens of thousands of years. So we're not just talking about a point in time uh, episode or something that was brought from, from above or from the stars. We're talking about a civilization that clearly developed, evolved on this planet through tens of thousands of years and then continued to influence the course and development of civilization until comparatively recent times. And in, a, in, a, in a way, I think... But the best evidence uh, for that is that uh, pretty much all of us, all humans living today, were, were descendants of Atlanteans, of this lost civilization. Yeah, but um, what, one thing that, that makes me question about, like, the, like, the, is the, the, we the weirdness of, like, the ages. Like, it, like, if you look at the Sumerian kings list, for example, like, mm -hmm. and I know we're talking about Atlantis and Sumeria, but they could have coexisted, you know, at some point. The end of Atlantis could have been the start of Sumeria, and, you know, and then we could have the Anunnaki refugees coming from Atlantis into Samaria and starting civilization. But those Sumerian kings who took over for the Anunnaki, who the Anunnaki appointed to be kings, lived for thousands of years, you know, and then all yep. of a sudden it stopped. Like, so that makes me think, like, what were they that they were able to live that long? You know, and I'm not saying I'm not saying I believe that they were extraterrestrial either, but... I, Something was different about them that they were able to live for thousands of years. I don't think that's a, just a mistake. I don't think I don't think they would make. I mean, it, and then there's people that say the the Sumerian kings list uh, adds up to like 432,000 years, which is like 432. Okay, that could just be a coincidence, right? But I think those. I think it has to do with those ages mean something. I think those ages were like real. Like I. I, I mean, what are your thoughts? 
Well, I, I do think uh, that uh, some of these ages actually hint at a much longer lifespan in, uh, in antiquity. Now, um, I think some of the most extreme cases uh, may probably be better interpreted as uh, uh, an attempt to fill lacunas in the text so rather than referring to a single king. Uh, they may be referring to entire dynasties, so they may help to recognize some of the longest uh, um, durations of time, but even even so, even if we look at uh, some of the durations of uh, the or some of the lifespans quoted in the Bible, for instance, for the Antediluvian patriarchs, you find lifespans of uh, several centuries, even. So uh, I think there are really uh, two possible explanations for these. One is a superior genetics, uh, and the other one is a very advanced medical science. Uh, I do believe that these uh, uh, civilization, which was a very advanced, uh, certainly a scientifically advanced, uh, possibly also technologically advanced civilization that existed on uh, Atlantis, uh, most likely possessed uh, medical technology uh, and the ability to genetically engineer uh, the, the human genome uh, in a way that would allow these uh, extreme uh, uh, light spikes. Now, not suggesting thousands of years, but uh, certainly in excess of uh, 100 years, two or 200 years lifespans. So, um, and again, this was a, a pretty characteristic that became lost uh, through uh, the process of interbreeding with other human species uh, as Atlantean civilization also fell into decadence. Also, we could have lost the technology through the cataclysm, right? It makes mm -hmm. sense um, it, because right around after the flood, you know, in all cultures, you see humans starting to live like drastically a lot yep. um, shorter. I mean, I think Noah lives to be like 900 years, you know, and he's also mm -hmm. Atrahasis and Ziasudra or whatever, but he, wh whoever he was, he lives to like 900 years old. And then Enoch is like a thousand years old, you know, but then after that, it, it drastically reduces, you know, and, mm -hmm. and that's very yes. weird. That makes me think that there's lost technology there. I, I, I would agree. But, well, but, there is one very, one very interesting aspect uh, about uh, uh, like these uh, these extreme lifespans. Actually, it's a passage from the Bible in which God Himself says that after the uh, after the deluge, after the original sin, uh, the age of man would be kept to 120 years. This almost suggests sort of a genetic engineering uh, in a way. Another possibility I suggest in the book is that actually uh, modern humans uh, were, or we are in fact a genetically engineered species by Atlanteans uh, that uh, also in, in performing these uh, uh, operation uh, deliberately kept the length of human life um, in order to perhaps exert a stronger control over, over human populations. So there is the suggestion in a number of ancient texts uh, from Mesopotamia, but also in the Bible, that uh, humans were actually uh, created or at least genetically engineered uh, by you know, the gods. So by, and I believe that by that, what's really implied is by, by Atlanteans, uh, by these uh, more advanced human species or human civilization uh, to basically uh, serve them as slaves or as a disposable workforce in a, in a way. And so that uh, it would make sense that as a way of keeping uh, uh, population under control, they would have uh, uh, deliberately altered uh, certain genetic characteristics of uh, humans, including the, the lifespan. 
Yeah, and, and it's interesting. And if you get into, like, you know, some, like, some forms of, like, spirituality, like, you know, and the aura, I think you can, you know, they can read the aura and the, some, so like, the chakras and the, like, so, like, it seems like whoever our genetic engineers were, they, like, they, they, they capped our telomeres, but they also gave us, like, a way to spiritually advance you know like it seems like they gave us like a way as we it seemed like they knew like maybe we would get a more intelligent as we and maybe our consciousness would expand as we aged or you know as history went on what, what do you think yeah yeah no i think and again this is something you find pretty much in all uh, esoteric traditions around the world is this idea that earlier humanity possessed uh, faculties uh, both spiritual and mental uh, way in excess or far in excess uh, of those possessed by modern humans. Um, and uh, I, I do believe in the possibility that at least uh, these uh, antediluvian uh, Atlanteans actually possessed uh, uh, faculties uh, that then became uh, uh, lost uh, in uh, modern uh, modern humanity. Um, again, if you go back to this idea of the mortal admixture, they might have been part of the cause, uh, right? These uh, originally divine humans uh, through constantly their breeding with other human species, hominid species. Species, uh, they may have lost uh, some of the original characteristic uh, of, of the race. Yeah. Now, what would you say there is for direct evidence that, uh, that uh, of Atlantis and its civilization? Is there any actual direct evidence besides Plato, or what would you say? Well, I wouldn't consider Plato direct evidence. I think Plato is still part of textual evidence, uh, which of course there are multiple accounts, there are probably dozens of uh, similar accounts, some of which we also mentioned, this Sumerian king list, uh, Egyptian king's list, or some of the oldest written documents uh, of, of mankind. Uh, talk about, uh, even though they may not explicitly call it Atlantis, but they certainly talk about a lost golden age, a uh, lost age of the gods, in which um, a very advanced civilization existed on Earth, and then it fell, and uh, you have a process of, of, of decadence, uh, downfall of uh, uh, civilization. Uh, now, uh, in terms of uh, direct evidence, uh, I would divide it uh, in... Uh, uh, Different, different types of evidence, right? I think there is a monumental evidence in terms of archaeological remains. There is uh, uh, evidence uh, in uh, the form of um, cultural traditions uh, and uh, genuine, uh, uh, I would say, like the genuine scientific legacy of uh, these uh, civilization uh, that survived, for instance, in various systems of ancient metrology, knowledge of the stars, of procession, of um, cartography, like very advanced knowledge that the ancient civilization possessed. Think of the Maya calendar, for instance, that was almost certainly inherited. It was almost certainly a legacy from um, a previous civilization. And then we also have uh, genetic evidence uh, to some extent uh, uh, represented by the diffusion of a certain genetic traits like haplogroup X, uh, the RH negative of blood factor. I suggest uh, a potentially unknown human population, an unknown ancestral 
uh, human population whose uh, genetic footprint we may still find among uh, humans living today. Now, if, you, if you're specifically looking for the evidence of a technologically advanced uh, civilization, again, I think uh, there are multiple uh, hints uh, to that, uh, if not direct evidence of it. Um, in Egypt, uh, in South America, there are numerous archaeological sites that show evidence of uh, advanced machining, uh, stone vitrification. Of course, we may not find, we may never find the machines that actually uh, were employed uh, to realize these works, but we can see, still see the uh, constructions uh, that and uh, uh, the, the results of the use of uh, these machines. We have, for instance, Egypt, uh, perfectly circular boreholes that were drilled through granite, through basalt, incredibly high speeds, uh, probably in excess, even the finest and most sophisticated machinery of today. We have at site called Abu Rawash, uh, just a few miles north of Giza. Uh, telltale signs and grannies uh, of the use of enormous circular cells, uh, probably with the diameter over seven meters, 23 feet. So we're talking about colossal machines that were employed. Uh, then the question of how such huge masses of stone as were required for the construction of pyramids of sites like Balbec, where we find over 1,000 ton stone blocks that could be moved uh, with the supposedly primitive means that these uh, ancient civilizations had at their, their disposal. And I think there is actually genuine scientific uh, uh, evidence or the, the legacy of uh, uh, Atlantean science, of prehistoric science. And uh, to me, probably the most, uh, uh, the most uh, compelling piece of evidence uh, is uh, uh, agriculture. I mean, this is something that uh, we take almost for granted, uh, but there is a very deep mystery around the origin of most of our modern crop varieties. They all appeared uh, uh, as if out of nowhere around the same time between 9,000 and 10,000 BC, uh, which again, I suggest is evidence of the fact they were brought from somewhere. And the level of sophistication of genetic engineering involved in uh, the domestication of crops like wheat, uh, like corn, for instance, uh, suggests an ability to manipulate the DNA of uh, plants uh, that is uh, probably even far in excess uh, of everything available today. So, uh, and proof is the fact that this has never been replicated uh, throughout the entire course of human history. It wow. occurred uh, clearly some 10,000 years ago and it was never again replicated. Pretty much all the food crops, all the foodstuffs that we know today appeared 10,000 years ago or around the same time in very specific parts of the world and no new crop varieties were ever introduced after that. I, that that's amazing. I've, I've never, I've never even thought about that. And it's, it's like, and, and it's, it's, it's so true. Like it, we, we, there, it's, that's, it is, it's like, it seems like, it, like you said, it was kind of introduced to us, like to, for us to, you know, to live up, to graze off, to live off of. And, and, uh, for, for for our species right and it's it's so interesting and and one other thing that you bring up is is the the megalithic sites i mean they're mm -hmm. they really are amazing they're amazing beyond i mean like there's it's so weird that there's pyramids all over the world i mean i just had the uh the founder of the bosnian pyramids on my show which mm -hmm. is sam osmanajic um yes and uh that site is amazing. I mean, they have uh, underneath uh, tunnels where there's uh, fresh water and there's healing properties. And then there, there seems to be 
I wanted to get your opinion on this. There seems to be like healing properties in like the, the stone circles of South Africa. And then there's stone circles in Europe as well. And there's healing properties around that. Have you found this as well? Because I think this is amazing. Well, first of all, uh, there is a clearly uh, worldwide uh, diffusion of uh, um, pyramids and pyramid building culture. It's almost a, like universally found pyramids pretty much in all ancient uh, culture, even though maybe separated by uh, thousands of miles and also thousands of years. In some cases, the construction of pyramids extended uh, for, for many, many thousands of years. And I, I do think that many of these great megalithic monuments at some point formed a part of a world great of ancient sites. So their uh, sighting, uh, their placing uh, is not uh, accidental. Their location was very carefully chosen, very carefully planned, based on a variety of geodetic considerations that have to do with the shape of the earth, um, trying to locate some of these sacred sites, uh, specific spots on the earth's surface, characterized uh, by um, specific uh, um, intensity of the Earth's magnetic field, uh, for instance, that can be measured at uh, some of these sites. So it was almost a form of Earth acupuncture, if you want. It had to do with the very precise uh, location and sighting of uh, pyramids and megalithic monuments at specific spots on uh, the Earth's surface in order to harness uh, certain, uh, certain energies that, again, in the esoteric tradition, they're called telluric energies, uh, but maybe, in fact, uh, just, a, just a reflection of the Earth's magnetic field. Uh, they uh, probably had a way of harnessing the power of the Earth, the power of the Earth's magnetic field. And uh, the second aspect uh, of uh, all of these is also the relationship of these monuments with the sky. Um, they, in, in many cases, in many instances, they were built up to be almost a terrestrial representation of the heavens. If you think of the Giza pyramids, for instance, they were built up as a terrestrial representation of the constellation of Orion. We have the case of the Temple of Angkor in Cambodia, where uh, the, the pattern of the city on the ground that really mimics and represents the constellation of Draco. But there are many more examples, even down to medieval Europe, um, if you look at the location of some of the uh, most important Gothic cathedrals in the north of France, uh, the Notre Dame cathedrals of the north of France. Uh, they also uh, match the position of the stars in the constellation of Virgo. So there is this idea that the earth was in a way the image of heaven, which suggests that by creating a copy of the heavens on earth, you could also harness some of these celestial energies. And uh, again, if you believe in this idea of a sympathetic magic and uh, uh, like hermetic magic, uh, really, uh, the, the, the fundamental um, principle of talisman is uh, like creating a copy of something in order to harness its energy so that in a way by creating a copy of the heavens on earth that they were able to harness the energies of the uh, the influences of the stars and uh, uh, i think a part of the part of what they were trying to achieve uh, in a way was uh, what is called in many alchemical texts uh, as well the sacred marriage of heaven and earth so on the one hand you have terrestrial energies that they were harnessed at these sides because of their very specific location uh, at some hot spots uh, along the, uh, the world grid, like specific places uh, of uh, gravitational or magnetic anomalies. And then uh, their orientation with respect to the stars uh, at the same time 
they could harness both terrestrial and celestial energies to, to produce a variety of, of effects, uh, many of which we, we, we do not understand, but some of you, you also mentioned like healing, uh, like uh, um, fertility, for instance, uh, like causing crops to, to, to grow, um, definitely like a variety of, of effects that are poorly understood, uh, to say the least. By, by modern science, but were clearly of the greatest importance to ancient civilizations. Yeah, and, and the last question I have for you is um, the, the significance of the serpent symbol. Like, um, if you look at the esoteric traditions, like if you look at Anki, right? Anki had the serpent symbol, which was like the Kundalini. And then um, uh, I think it was, uh, uh, what's his, his son, Ningshida, who had the uh, caduceus with the two snakes intertwined, which is, we still use the caduceus today. And then if you go down to South America, you have Quetzalcoatl and the, the, the feathered serpent. I mean, there was definitely like a, like a serpent type theme to all this, right? There was, it seemed like mm -hmm. with these gods, would you say? Well, the serpent, uh, the, the serpent symbol, of course, like uh, took on uh, different, uh, um, different significance uh, for, for different cultures. I think uh, in, in many cases, uh, it's a representation of the terrestrial energies uh, as well. So you think of the myth, uh, for instance, of uh, Apollo and the snake, and then in the Christian tradition, between St. Michael and the dragon, for instance, all these idea of dragon slayers uh, in, uh, in medieval Europe, but they all have to do with the taming of uh, the terrestrial energies of the telluric currents represented by, by the snake, uh, by the serpent. Uh, but uh, the, the snake, the serpent may have also originally uh, symbolized uh, comets. Uh, this is, uh, for instance, the symbolism that we find Exochicalco in ancient Mexico. Uh, in the Edfu building text, which are a set of ancient Egyptian texts that seem to describe uh, in a very similar way to Plato's Atlantis story, the destruction of uh, the primeval homeland of the god, uh, whereas, uh, again, the enemy, the, uh, the, uh, the agent of uh, the destruction is, again, depicted as a snake. So there is a, a very strong suggestion that snake uh, were also in some cases uh, um, taken to be symbols and images of uh, comets. That's amazing. I never even thought of that. Like, uh, that, that, that's, that's really cool. Um, it was, is there anything that we might have been, uh, haven't went over? Um, I think the only, only question is, um, are there any secret societies? Well, this is one of the questions that which she had in here and now asked this, are there any groups or secret societies that continue the Atlantean tradition today? I think that's a good question. Well, I do think uh, that uh, Atlantean civilization did not certainly vanish overnight. So even though it was uh, certainly mortally wounded uh, by the cataclysms at the end of the Younger Dryas, Atlantean civilization uh, certainly continued for centuries, maybe even thousands of years afterwards in different parts of the world. Now, of course, these people were cut off uh, from uh, all the like advanced uh, science and technology of uh, a previous period. And so there was... Clearly, a decadence is also evident that sites like uh, like Quebec Litepe, so much was was lost. So it was actually 
process of, uh, of, of decadence, of decay. Uh, but uh, at the same time, uh, some of the fundamental principles of uh, Atlantean science, of what they call the Atlantean tradition, they survived. Uh, they were passed on to various uh, mystery schools, mystery tradition, because we find them still very much intact in Pharaonic Egypt, uh, for instance. Uh, what they suggest is also a chain of transmission uh, from uh, Egypt uh, to uh, Greece, the Hellenistic world, uh, through the channel of uh, uh, Hermetism, this is a syncretic cult that developed uh, in uh, Hellenistic Alexandria during uh, the, the Greek Roman period. Uh, and, that, and from there, there is actually evidence that this tradition permeated the first Byzantine East, then the Arabic world. Um, probably the, the Templars uh, uh, were the first to bring it back uh, to Europe. Uh, there were a number of different movements, the Cathars, Tambien, uh, as well at the time, that uh, may have uh, uh, brought back parts of this uh, tradition from the Byzantine East into from the Byzantine Arabic East uh, into into Europe and then this uh, this tradition probably continued uh, again with uh, the Rosicrucians and, uh, and the number of other esoteric schools so I'm, I'm not suggesting that one single school or one single esoteric movement holds the, the full truth but I do think that many of uh, these uh, uh, traditions uh, and uh, esoteric mystery schools around the world they still preserve a fragments of the original teachings and the original mystical traditions of Atlantis, even today. That, that's amazing. This is well, so amazing. This is my favorite subject to talk about. Well, if you could tell everybody where to find the book and where to find your website and all that, uh, that'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. So the book is available at most uh, bookstores uh, um, across the U.S., uh, it's also available on Amazon and uh, on uh, the publisher's website uh, on uh, Inner Traditions uh, and uh, Simon & Schuster. It's also available internationally on uh, Amazon.com uh, and uh, on uh, international bookstores. So you can also follow my website. Uh, it's www.marcovigato.com. Um, there we find excerpts uh, from the book. Uh, you also find links uh, to my own blog where I uh, put uh, uh, many research reports. Uh, I write articles about uh, my latest research and explorations in search for the evidence of Atlantis and our lost civilization. So you can find there uh, lots of pictures and reports of archaeological sites, many of the uh, enigmas that we discussed uh, uh, right now on the show. Well, I want to thank you for coming and meeting with me today and doing this. It's, this was an amazing show. This is my favorite, like I said, my favorite thing to talk about. And, uh, and thank you for taking your time and, uh, and uh, thank you. Have a good night. This is great, Robert. Thank you. All right. Nice meeting you.